I was a little bit different. Um, most people that uh, became accounting majors um, was due to their uh, real love and, and, and true, um, you know, grasp and, and, and emotional connection to to uh, to numbers and, and so forth. I became an accounting major because I felt that I had a decent marketing and finance background. Um, but, you know, to me, accounting, at least, you know, again, with the guidance of my parents and friends, it was really the core um, of every business and, and every um, type of financial transaction uh, is really comes down to accounting. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick and I'm the Dean of the Farmer School of Business here at Miami University. Today I'm joined by Michael Moses who graduated with a bachelor's degree in accountancy and a minor in management information systems back in 1989. Michael's also come back and joined us many times as a guest lecturer in finance and real estate. So welcome Michael, great to have you on Beyond High Street. Uh, thanks for having me. As the listeners know, during the podcast, we do weave through a range of topics and it'll come as no surprise that we'll probably lean heavily into real estate since that's something that Michael's really defined his career over. So the, my goal, is, as the listeners know, is to get to know you, Michael, a little bit more, more about your journey to the role you currently have and some memories along the way of your time at Miami University. So I think the most important question we have to begin with is why did you choose the Pharma School of Business? Why Miami? Why Pharma? For me, uh, growing up uh, where I did in uh, the east side of Cleveland, um, Miami, you know, the reputation throughout Cleveland and throughout the state of Ohio uh, in the 80s was just amazing. And it was always considered a privilege uh, to uh, attend Miami. Most all of my friends were going to uh, other schools throughout the state. But my parents, um, fortunately, were very uh, directed to me saying that if you get into Miami, especially because I was focusing on accounting, um, that that's where I really needed to go. But I did do the, the full tour of schools throughout Ohio and throughout the Midwest. And uh, fortunately, and I look back as uh, one of the best things my parents ever pointed me towards that, uh, you know, Miami came through for me. Um, I attended the school really not knowing anybody. Uh, most of my friends were all kind of grouping together, going to other schools. But my parents really thought, and when I went down and did a visit uh, with a family friend of ours, uh, I fell in love with obviously the the red brick, um, and and everything about the uh, the business school. So it it really uh, was a, a great move for me. One that I don't know how important I thought it was at the time, but definitely looking back, uh, it was a great moment in my life. Great decision, and we do have an incredible accountancy program still. It's it's certainly well ranked and well regarded. So when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, Michael, I see a really interesting career path. You know, starting in accounting. Um, and then moving on to investment banking, then ultimately moving into equity, the equity side of real estate. So can you um, share with the listeners the journey that you've had to get to the role that you currently have? Sure, absolutely. And, and that journey, believe it or not, it's really considered, I consider that to be truly you know, a journey. And a lot of it actually had to do a lot with Miami. Um, I was a little bit different. Um, most people that uh, became accounting majors um, was due to their uh, real love and, and, and true, um, you know, grasp and, and, and emotional connection to to uh, to numbers and, and so forth. I became an accounting major because I felt that I had a decent marketing and finance background. Um, but, you know, to me, accounting, at least, you know, again, with the guidance of my parents and friends, it was really the core um, of every business and, and every um, type of financial transaction uh, is really comes down to accounting. So to me, wasn't sure if my career was going to go specifically into accounting, but I knew that 
from an educational standpoint, academic standpoint, that accounting would be the best for me. I actually also went to a high school uh, that was somewhat vocational to some extent and had a, an accounting track. And so my parents felt that um, due to my love for math to some extent that it would make uh, a lot of sense. So I, I started out, as you know, um, on the accounting side, but really kept a, a firm connection to other parts of finance. Um, and as you noted earlier, I brought on the management information systems minor uh, to my resume, thinking that I really needed to be very well-rounded. Um, and so I, you know, with the real help and, and background of Miami, I've uh, got myself a couple of great internships um, in, in major cities. That was important, um, both for me and the direction that I was provided. And so I, I really started out in accounting, was really dealt a curveball very early in my career because I accepted a job at a firm um, and denied uh, accepting a job at a different firm. And then at, between the time that I graduated and I started work, uh, those two firms merged. And so that was uh, where, you know, the Arthur Young and Ernst and Winnie um, merger came with Arthur Young, uh, obviously turning into Ernst and Young. And so when I came back um, to work, uh, it was a little bit of a different environment than what I expected when I took the job. But I, I stuck it out and worked as hard as I could, but started getting the feeling that it wasn't the best um, career potentially for me, even though I was enjoying it. Um, my parents were uh, very front and center to me and said that, hey, maybe uh, banking and getting a, an MBA would be a, a nice little pivot for you. Uh, because again, I always really enjoyed finance. And so that's really what I did was I, I interviewed very quickly for a couple banking jobs that I, I got quickly into the, you know, key, uh, excuse me, the PNC, uh, or at that time, National City Bank banking program, corporate training program, and, and then went to night school for my MBA, which I strongly encourage for people to do if at all possible. Um, and then I went through my, my banking time. Uh, then I really wanted to go into investment banking. So started down the path of working with municipal bonds um, and real estate uh, on the finance side of things. And, and that took me over to uh, kind of in reverse. So some people start out at Wall Street. But for me, I started out with accounting, then regional banking, and then went to Wall Street, working for Credit Suisse um, in their um, real estate equity group. Uh, and, um, you know, really through that, uh, three groups working for KeyBank, Credit Suisse on Wall Street and the GMAC really got a, a really strong background in real estate finance and equity. Uh, and then I really felt that my calling was on the fundraising side of real estate. And so that's really what I started branching off to about, uh, 14 years ago, about 12 years ago, you know, call it a 2010. Uh, and I started raising capital for a, a major uh, nationally ranked uh, real estate development firm, uh, both institutionally and high net worth. And then, uh, as you can tell, recently, about six, seven years ago, took a job at a boutique uh, real estate investment banking firm uh, that's owned uh, by an NFL uh, player and uh, started raising money uh, for their efforts in uh, purchasing old historic commercial buildings in uh, cities throughout the nation. What drew you, you know, as you see, the last five to seven years, you've been doing a lot of re, re, remodeling, renovation, rehabilitation. What drew you into that? And, and tell me what some of the highlights of that particular path have been for you. Yeah, so that's a great question. I actually, you know, when I did make that transition, I, I did it with a purpose. Um, it wasn't that, hey, somebody offered me something great and I just jumped at it. Um, I have children uh, that are in their, uh, their mid-20s, mid to late 20s. So at that time, they were in their uh, early 20s. And I really started paying attention, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to what the next generations were really looking to do. Because when I was 
uh, getting married and, and in my, my mid to late uh, 20s and into my 30s, everybody had to own a house and everybody had to have kids and everybody needed to do everything really early in life. So, um, and again, I was in graduate school at the time, but with my kids and, and observing what the new generations were coming up, I really observed that with the housing crisis, which I, I lived through when I was at Credit Suisse, you know, everybody went back to saying, it's okay to rent. It's okay to get married later. It's okay to move into the city, uh, into the urban areas uh, where everybody was really gravitating at that time to the suburban areas. So I said to myself that if I was going to make a, a change, uh, staying in real estate, obviously, that I was going to do it with a purpose in an area where I thought it would have a nice runway for the next 10 to 20 years. And to me, that was going into an area where I'd be raising capital for uh, somehow downtown urban core types of real estate um, on the rental side of things, be it commercial or multifamily, uh, in something that would be uh, attractive uh, to the next generation. And to me, these old historic buildings, you know, in, in non-major cities, so not doing deals in, in, in only in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, you know, but going into Nashville and Seattle and Asheville and Atlanta, um, Savannah, Austin, uh, you know, Salt Lake City, you know, these kind of secondary uh, tertiary cities that aren't considered gateway cities, but really where the young folks wanted to go to Charlotte and so forth. And so to me, uh, with the purpose that I joined this firm that was really targeted on working on real estate in, in those types of situations. That's really interesting. And, and just for the benefit of the listeners from your LinkedIn profile, just for this particular work you're doing, if I'm correct, you've raised around 300 million in, in capital from uh, for 80 projects. I, I didn't write down the right number of investors. Is it 500 investors or 50? Yeah. So, so in my career, um, yeah. because when you're working for these large Wall Street firms and large multinationals, you know, you're raising hundreds of millions. So mm -hmm. I think I've raised about $4 billion mm -hmm. from an institutional standpoint. But since I've joined uh, the, the firm I'm at now, which is GBX, uh, yes, it's upwards to about $300 million, uh, but all raised from high net worth and, and high income individuals. Um, so when you're raising money from life insurance companies and, uh, and REITs and pension funds, you know, they're writing checks in the 10 and $100 million checks. So it's easy to get up to those large numbers pretty quick. But when you're working with high net worth uh, individuals and family offices, you know, getting up to $300 million, uh, in in just over five or six years, uh, I'm pretty proud of that uh, and excited for, uh, for, the, for the future yeah. ahead of the firm. Now, you were saying earlier on that you were predicting the, future, you know, the, the trends with respect to a younger audience, those in their 20s. Talk to me about COVID and, and, and how that's either affirmed the choices you made or, or uh, encouraged you to adjust the choices that you're making with respect to development. Sure. So when I think back to, to COVID, um, I think back to uh, one of the uh, gentlemen, uh, very high level uh, senior management person that I worked for over at Credit Suisse, who was uh, himself, uh, you know, written books about him. And when the housing crisis was, was happening, which I consider, you know, in a similar way to, to COVID, he sat us all down, you know, the, the, the bankers over at Credit Suisse, however many there was of us, 100, and said, look, you have to look at things in, in five-year increments. Um, you're going to have in those five years, you're going to have a couple un unbelievable years. You're going to have a couple years that are going to kind of struggle. And then you'll have a year or two that'll be just kind of averaging good. And so, you know, that's kind of one of those, you can look at certain situations as opportunities or challenges. And so when COVID came, there were people that were very concerned, you know, about what I was doing, my family, my friends, 
uh, because you're in real estate, you're in these areas, you're in these markets where uh, young people were um, having issues and, and, and businesses were, were struggling with, with paying bills and so forth. But, you know, there, there's certain markets that you're buyers and certain markets where you're sellers. And with COVID uh, in our situation, we pivoted uh, to really being a buyer. Um, where there were people that own this real estate that we've been trying to buy for a number of years, and they really weren't willing to part with it because they had a very short-term view of things, and that's their prerogative. Um, we, um, at this firm, fortunately, because of our ownership structure, you know, have a very long-term view. And so we were willing to, uh, to purchase some deals in some markets that had struggled uh, because of COVID, knowing that um, shortly thereafter, uh, the market would come back. Uh, because we felt that it had a, a good, strong basis to it. You know, I, I definitely remember during the housing crisis, you know, markets like Orlando and New York and, and uh, Las Vegas and, and other markets really got destroyed uh, under the housing crisis. But you knew that some of those markets, like in Orlando and definitely in New York, um, really had a strong underlying basis to it. And as a result, you knew they would come back, um, you know, whereas others may not. So you just had to be careful with it. But with COVID, there definitely were... Uh, uh, some opportunities that we definitely took advantage of. Um, and uh, we're very excited about uh, what, what came to us during those times. That's great. Now it's time to pivot to part two of the interview where we go for a trip down memory lane. And I'll ask you, uh, it's the rapid fire round, Michael, <laughs> that I'll ask you a range of questions related to your time here at Miami and, and as best you can remember. So when you look back at your time at Miami, did you have a favorite professor? And if so, who was it? There really wasn't one professor uh, that jumped out at me. Um, I, I was uh, in the Sammy house for a period of time and my uh, uh, kind of the headmaster that ran that house, Jerry, was uh, a very calming um, uh, source for me. Um, but there were definitely classes um, that, that I remember vividly in my first accounting class um, that, that I took. It was definitely a wake up call, um, even though I did have some accounting background, as I noted earlier. Um, you know, accounting uh, was a very much of a wake up call for me and all of my professors. I probably should have done a better job of staying in touch with them, um, but I didn't. And I definitely when I got to grad school, I looked back. And when I came back to Miami to, as you noted, to lecture a few times, um, I, I wasn't proud of myself that I didn't do a good enough job. So I definitely have encouraged my own children uh, and others who I chat with to to really try to build a bond uh, with a favorite professor or two or five. Uh, because you never know where they're going to be of assistance to you. But um, there definitely were many classes that I look back and, and really enjoyed. Without naming a professor, was there a subject that you least enjoyed while you were here? Uh, believe it or not, I really enjoyed uh, my management information systems. I mean, on the accounting side, I kind of took those classes because I felt I kind of needed to. Um, but back then in the, in the mid to early 80s, you know, it was a time before uh, anybody had their own computer or their own laptop, believe it or not. We had to go to the computer lab, you know, and stay there till two, three in the morning uh, to do our work and to learn how to use Excel and Lotus uh, and, and Microsoft Word. It was really in the early stages going back 40 years ago. So I really enjoyed um, that because I didn't have any exposure to computers uh, in high school, never really use a word processor in high school. Really, we all use typewriters showing my age. Um, so I really enjoyed my management information systems classes uh, back then. What about least favorite subjects? I always had, you know, I, I could probably say something like geology or one of the, uh, you know, the, the science classes like botany just because or chemistry, because that really wasn't my forte. But, but I'll always tell you that, you know, I was brought up, you know, in a kind of a working class blue collar home. 
And my parents always kind of said to me, look, there's certain things you have options and, and other things that you don't. And if you don't have the option uh, of something. You just need to make the best of it. It's all mental. So even though I knew I'd be taking these classes or a subject matter that I wasn't overly excited about or maybe felt it wasn't my strength, I still kind of got in my head that, you know, I needed to focus and find something from it. I always kind of use the rule of threes that I needed to come away from each class with at least three things, you know, that I would enjoy and that I would I would use potentially in the future. That's such good advice for the students who are listening. So what co-curricular activities were you, were you involved in? I try to take advantage of as much as I can. I mean, obviously, I, I try to take advantage of Greek life. Um, I, I did lots of things in, in intramurals. Um, when, when it came to clubs, uh, again, back in, in the 80s, it wasn't as vibrant um, as it is today. Uh, but, but I definitely uh, tried to uh, take advantage of the, the business and finance clubs on campus. Um, you know, going back to real estate and investment banking, they really weren't in vogue. So there really wasn't much in the way of that. But um, I, I lived I love to go to lectures um, whenever anybody politically would come to campus, even though I really wasn't I was very green when it came to politics. Um, I wanted to listen. You know, I really wasn't one to, to turn out to to uh, uh, to protest or anything to that event. Uh, but I did like to listen. Um, I also uh, back then there were lots of concerts that I would go to. Um, again, most of the, the, the actual sporting events, uh, be it basketball, football, uh, I was big into baseball, had lots of friends uh, that played baseball for other Mac schools. So I would definitely um, go to those games along with hockey. Back then, hockey wasn't as big as it is today. It was just up and coming. Uh, but I really enjoyed intramurals. Uh, it was very vibrant. And um, all of my friends took part in that and obviously spent you know, a fair amount of time up in High Street and, and really tried to have a, uh, a very well-rounded um, you know, time there at Miami. So the next question is about whether you essentially are you a morning person or not. So did you have a favorite time of the day for class or, you know, might you have been one of those students that would give you us all sorts of reasons as to why you couldn't take a class at eight in the morning? So, you know, early on back in those days, um, we really weren't given much of a choice, definitely as a freshman and I believe close as a sophomore, you really had early classes. And, and again, I can't speak to how Miami works things today. But back then, every class you went to, no matter how big or small, they took attendance. And so for me, it was never even a question. I could have been up the entire night being studying or doing something else, but I would always have the ability to rally and get to my class, be in my seat. If there were 20 kids in class or 300 in class, I was there uh, paying attention, doing the best I could. Um, I was never one that really needed a lot of sleep. I you know, lived in a triple now in Denison, so they were uh, in, a, in a very small room that I still can't imagine, you know, people living in back then or myself for that matter. So I was, you know, able to get up and around and do things. Um, later in life, I had twins, uh, and so I didn't get much sleep then. But I think being at Miami, um, I felt it was important for those four years. My parents said to me, you get four years, that's it. So make sure you graduate in four years. That I got up, I got to my classes, I didn't miss much. Um, I was always there. But as I said, I, you know, had my fun and, and did my things, but I always made sure that I got to class. I also think, believe it or not, I think the earlier classes were a little bit easier for me because I think later in the day, your mind starts wandering about what are you doing that night. I also, because of the family I came from, I had to work. So um, I had jobs, be it working in the computer lab, uh, working at uh, Top Deck, Skippers, other places that I needed to be at uh, later that evening. So for me, um, if I wasn't taking classes till noon or one o'clock, you know, my mind would be wandering and, you know, what are we doing tonight? You know, what's going on this evening? Whereas if you're taking your classes in the early part of the day, 
you know, it leaves you the, uh, the second half of the day potentially to study and get caught up on your work. Oh, that's great. What did you have a favorite night of the week while you're at Miami? Oh, uh, that's, that's, that's a great question. Believe it or not. Um, when, when I was going to school, even though I'll tell you, I started out really enjoying Thursday nights. Um, you know, we had quarter beers. This was long, long time ago. And you can imagine those economics, but Sunday nights, um, at Ozzy's, um, or balcony, which was called back then, I don't believe is there any longer. They would always bring a comedy show through the school. And so Sunday nights, which was kind of a calming night, you know, there wasn't a, a big partying night. Me and my friends would go up to high street. We'd go up to balcony. And we would always take in the comedy shows to the point where I still have ticket stubs from the comedy shows uh, that I went to a few of them. I didn't keep them all, but um, that would always happen on Sunday evenings. So for me, I would always have, you know, my fun on Thursdays and other evenings, you know, but what I remember the most uh, is consistently that Sunday night. You talked earlier about having a couple of internships. Can you tell us a bit more about those internships? Yeah, so my parents um, were, you know, I, I keep coming back to them. They sound like they're terrible people. They're not. Uh, but they were pretty adamant, as I was with my kids, about internships. And, and to me, uh, people that I coach up, and my own children and others, uh, they're, they're of critical importance. In fact, right now, I'm kind of hoping, you know, to work with my son a little bit on, on, on and guiding him with his, in, uh, with his internship interviews uh, in New York City uh, this upcoming summer. Um, but Miami was a great help. I would definitely not have been able to do it on my own, the Career Center, which I will say, because I've already had three children go through other schools and their career centers. And even now, 40 years later, I will tell you that Miami did far more for me in the 80s you know, than these other schools have done for my children. Um, thank God for Miami and, and the career centers. So they guided me into two separate internships, one with a small accounting firm uh, in Chicago uh, after my sophomore year. And then with obviously a, a big aid at that time with Ernst and Winnie uh, internship in Chicago um, my, after my junior year. And, um, you know, they really helped me out with getting out my resume and helping everybody in our accounting program uh, to make certain that they uh, that everybody who wanted an internship had an internship, you know, at a, a credible, reputable uh, accounting firm. Uh, again, at that point, I was just zeroed in on accounting. I can't speak to uh, other areas, but I know back. In those days, farmers um, you know, did an amazing job of helping us in the accounting side of things. That's great. And we still, and we still have an incredible career service function. And you know, about 90% of our students have one internship, more than half have two, and about 90% have a job within months of graduation. So, so we, we, we chug along. It's, it's quite remarkable to me to see. So coming back to campus, what was your favorite building on campus? Not Uptown. We'll come to Uptown in a minute. My favorite building. Um, I mean, I would say outside of uh, of my dorm, Denison, um, and, and keep in mind that the, the School of Business looked a lot different back in the 80s. It isn't as beautiful as it is today. And I'm glad to see a lot of the, the dollars that I've donated both to the Bloomberg Center and to the real estate program. Um, you know, they're just spectacular. But my favorite building, um, probably at that point, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was the old hockey hall um, where they would have the hockey games. Obviously, that was torn down. Um, you know, to put up what, what is there today, the beautiful hockey center that you have there today. But I spent so many hours there, uh, if just not going to hockey games, but playing broom ball, you know, which I still bring back to uh, Miami tradition, which is an amazing uh, sport. And we had so much fun in intramurals. Uh, maybe today it would be pickleball, but back then, you know, broom ball was, you know, we play that till, till the wee hours of the morning uh, with the games. Um, but I just really enjoyed 
again, the one year that I lived on campus at, at Denison and then in the house and then obviously, uh, you know, different uh, different uh, uh, buildings. But if I had to think about the ones that really stuck in my mind, it would be Denison uh, and then where we just played a lot of the indoor intramurals during the, the winter times. What about Uptown? You've mentioned a couple of favorite spots, but do you have one favorite spot that just pops in your head Uptown? For me, it'd still be Skippers, you know, at this point in time. Um, I worked there. Um, I drank there. Um, I, I, I had lots of memories there uh, between, you know, just the food and me working there both at the door and being a cook myself and, and enjoying times there. Also, Upper Deck, uh, Top Deck, um, you know, really enjoyed when it was open. I know it wasn't open all the time. Um, but, um, you know, Mac and Joe's, which I'm not sure is there any longer. Still Again, there. I, no, we love Mac and Joe's. <laughs> you know, Ozzy's and, and, and Balcony. Um, even Chuck's Diner. Um, and, you know, to me back when Chuck was, you know, a food truck way back before food trucks were even existing, it was a guy, you know, selling chicken sandwiches out of a, out of a mobile home, you know, uh, in Uptown. And, and people were concerned about that. And I'm like, look, I love chicken sandwiches late at night if I can go to Chuck's. Uh, and get that on the way to my uh, home where I was renting uh, junior and senior year. Those those are just fond memories that are, you know, etched in my in my head. So you've been back a few times to guest lecture. Have you been back to Skippers? I have been. Every time I come back, um, I did do a tour. I brought all three of my kids. I made it very clear to them that if they were going to any school in Ohio, uh, that would be the only school that I'd let them go to. Uh, they all decided to go to the East Coast. Um, but every time I come back there, I... I visit all the, the regular spots. Uh, I, I go to the bookstore. I, I go to the bars and restaurants. I've even run into to people that recognize me, which is kind of scary from, you know, that they have kids there that they were visiting, uh, you know, alumni for a variety of reasons. And, you know, we would reminisce and, and even running into, you know, a Miami alum elsewhere, uh, not just in, in, in Cleveland and Miami, where I spend most of my time uh, residing, but, but in other cities uh, where I'm passing through. So what's your most memorable personal experience from the time you spent at Miami? You know, it's, 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 I mean, I would have to split that into, um, you know, a, a, a couple of different um, avenues. First, from an academic standpoint, you know, I felt very proud um, to, you know, I, I never felt, I never knew how proud I would feel at graduation, you know, that I graduated in four years that I was able to have a major and a minor, uh, that, that I came out with, with a full-time job. You know, I just felt that that, that is a memory that, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a kid like me who, who went to an extremely average high school in Cleveland and was, was told maybe you're not cut out for college, I felt that, you know, getting to that point in my um, academic career was extremely important. And I, and I felt just, you know, still to this day, uh, proud of myself and very memorable moment, you know, but I also believe that, you know, schools, we all know is more about, about that. It's, it's about being well-rounded and having a, a, a great social experience and, 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 and friendships, you know, that stick with you. So, so I look back also at that, you know, the fraternity that I probably wasn't as good to as I should have been. And the friends that I made during those years, still to this day, uh, there's at least a half a dozen to a dozen of those people who I interact with on a pretty regular basis. Either I go to lunch uh, we're friendly through the community. Um, our wives are friends, some connection there um, with um, people from the business school, um, from from farmers at uh, at Miami uh, or from the house at Miami or from other fraternities 
at Miami. Um, I still have the, the baby book, which I'm sure people that are listening to this don't really know about, but before social media uh, and, and there being a, an online system, we, uh, Miami would publish a book uh, every freshman year of everybody's picture and everybody's name. So if you uh, saw somebody and you didn't know their name or you forgot who they were, um, or if you heard about somebody, you could open up this book, like a yearbook, um, and, and figure out who that person was. And I still have mine um, from freshman year. And we, as my, my friends go around, we, we laugh about it because we send each other funny pictures. We run into people. And we're like, oh, my God, look at them in the, in the, um, in, in the baby book. And it's a, uh, obviously leading up to Facebook. Um, but it, it was a, uh, a great thing. And those are just memories, both on the social and academic side of things. In addition to my internship, I will tell you that one thing, even though you didn't ask me, I think it's important for me to bring up, that I didn't do, that my parents did offer me, was to go to Luxembourg. And at that time, traveling, uh, traveling abroad or studying abroad wasn't in vogue. I would say about maybe 10, 15% of the people back in the 80s would do that, whereas now it's obviously a lot higher than that, thank goodness. Um, I turned that down, even though I did have two or three friends that went to Lux. Um, I look back on that and saying that was something that I missed out on. And I do travel to Europe and I, I do get out there and I do make certain my three kids are between Florence, Barcelona uh, and, and, and other cities that they are studying abroad. And I encourage anybody who's listening to this that they have a chance to go to Asia or to Lux or Europe or any other of these phenomenal programs that my, Miami now offers. You know, please take advantage of it, even if you're a little nervous about it. Um, it's, it's definitely worth doing and something I look back on and, and wish I did differently. What great reflections. And I love, I love the reflections and especially your comment about graduation. We've just had graduation and, and it just, I find it the most grounding experience in, in the calendar because it reminds me why I do my job, but I love the comments you made. And I'm sure that, I mean, and the advice your parents gave you, they must've been so proud watching you walk across the stage and, and seeing you graduate just as, as, as much as you, um, relished in the, in, in the occasion as well. I, I think it's great. Yeah. So, and the, the thing to point out real quick, and I'll just close the loop on that, is that some of this as students, you may not think as much about. Um, but also you have to remember that, and hopefully m many of you do, your, your parents are the ones that really helped you get there. And if your, your parents want to see you walk across that stage and, and want to see you graduate and go through that, if you have to go through, because I know now that sometimes there's two different graduations, one the big one and then a smaller one for your school and so forth. I would encourage you to, to do that and, and go along with whatever your parents' plans are. I know I was a little bit rebellious about that and was far more cooperative with my parents at graduate school graduation, um, but it is a thrill for them more than you could ever believe um, for them to really see you walk across that stage, no matter if you're first generation or in my case, third generation uh, college graduate. And so uh, it's very important. That's great advice. So we're just at the final part of our podcast where I want you to give some specific advice to people listening. And I divide this into two parts. So if you can give advice firstly to incoming first year students, and then the second part is to recent graduates who've been on the job market a couple of years. Sure. So I'll do the best I can from an incoming freshman standpoint. Um, really look at your your freshman year as, as a transition year. It really is. Um, you're going to have, and I'll, I'll kind of go back to, you know, this, this, this great advice that I got from my um, really senior manager mentor over credit suites is that you're going to have a lot of ups and downs. You're going to lot, lot have a lot of hurdles. Um, I don't like to see people transferring. Um, I don't think it's good. I, I've, I've seen too many of 
you know, fortunately not my kids, but nieces and nephews and even friends, kids who are not exactly sure where they want to go to school. And when they, they pick a school, their parents say to them, well, you give it a year. If you don't like it, you can always leave. I don't think that's good advice. My parents, you know, dropped me off and saying, you're going to stay here four years. You're going to have some issues. You're going to have some hurdles to clear and you're going to work through them. That's life. Uh, guess what? Um, you just can't run away from things. So you're going to work hard. Uh, you're going to have some successes. You're going to have some failures and you're going to deal with that. And we're going to work through it as a team and you're going to grow. You know, you're a teenager. You know, when you go to college, um, you're going to make some mistakes um, and you're going to learn from that. Um, but but I would encourage you to take full advantage of what the campus offers you, both academically and socially. Um, don't lose track of your grades. I know it's easy to, um, but the grades that you get your freshman year are as important as the grades you get your junior year. And as I'm certain that everybody who's an incoming freshman understands from high school, uh, it's the same way there, it's the same way in college. So don't kind of get yourself too much into a hole. Make sure you have a good balance. Uh, enjoy yourself. Um, you know, sometimes people don't get the best of roommates or the best of housing situations. It's okay. Uh, you'll get through it. We all live through it. As I said, I lived in a triple my freshman year with no air conditioning, you know, with two guys who I didn't know. Uh, and we all got through it. And I still reach out to them, believe it or not. And we're still friendly to some extent. Um, so do your best to kind of work through those hurdles and you'll clear them and you'll be just fine. Um, from a standpoint of uh, career advice to people that are uh, either finishing up their college uh, experiences or, you know, getting into the, to, the, to, to work. And I preach this to people that maybe have already sat through my, my lecture or have seen me at, at some panels. You'll, you'll see me always talk about a career path as a funnel. Um, you you want to start big and get small. Um, there was a story I'll tell. Um, one of my friend's uh, children I was offered a job from General Motors, GM. Um, when we were back in the 80s, GM was a, a big, sexy name, whereas today it's not. And he was debating not taking a job with GM and taking a job with some smaller, you know, Internet company. And I said, look, I go, your career is going to be, you know, extensive, 30 years. You really want to start off if you can, given a choice, you know, in a big, large company in a training program where you're going to get exposed to a million different things. If it's a bank program or a large corporate or a big law firm or wherever it may be, uh, you want to start big, get as many experiences. Because, for example, looking at myself, I never thought. I would be raising capital uh, and within the real estate program, um, you know, real estate career. You know, I was a, an accounting finance guy. And so you start off really big with a marketing, finance, accounting as a big funnel. And you start bringing that down and start narrowing in on your career path, maybe 10 and 15 years into your career. Then you've made yourself invaluable in some expertise, you know, that you can really use to help um, move yourself along. Don't chase the dollars. Nobody's going to, you know, uh, kill it when they're 20s. You know, you really take your 20s to figure your, out where you are. Skill set fits best. Um, figure out what what drives you and what you're passionate about, you know, in your 20s and, and have some experiences. You know, figure out which direction you want to go, where you want to live. Um, don't worry about killing it in the 20s. Just worrying about figuring out where you want to be in your 30s uh, and 40s and, and continue to always make yourself valuable. Um, no matter who you are, myself in my mid fifties, um, I still have to continue to be focused on where my value is and to continue to wake up every morning and go to work and make certain that the people there know that I provide value 
uh, no matter how successful I've been in certain areas, there's always things to, to learn. Um, don't ever shy away from getting coached up and to learn more, ask questions, uh, sit in other people's offices, listen to them, pitch people, talk on the phone, ask questions, uh, take chances too, take risks uh, when you're early on. Um, I, I did a few uh, career changes and job changes in areas that I wasn't 100% proficient in, but I, I felt confident in myself that I would work up the learning curve. So that's that's the best advice that I can provide. That's such good advice. So as we close, I'd like to thank you so much, Michael, for your gift of time to allow me to record this podcast. One defining characteristic of the Pharma School of Business is just how engaged our alumni are and how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school, its students, our faculty and staff and other alumni. So thank you, Michael, and go well as you continue in your journey beyond High Street. Thanks so much for your leadership.